Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of this series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, The Recognition of Our Own Heart. The talk was given by Karen Sprout Frankovich on August 20th, 2022, via Zoom. Karen is a teacher of all aspects of yoga, the physical and philosophical, the scientific and the mystical. She is a longtime student of Lee Lozowick. In this talk, Karen discusses the relevance of a sutra text written a thousand years ago to our own lives and how the spiritual path can loosen misidentifications and bring us to recognize our heart, the whole and every part of ourselves. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Karen Sprout Frankovich. This talk is not necessarily just about this book, the Pratyabhinya Hridaya. I'll talk about that in a moment. It's really more broadly about the view that this book presents, a view that is bigger than what we, I tend to walk around with necessarily. It kind of widens the lens, opens the picture frame. It really does it well. I love this text, but really the only reason I have any depth at all in being able to speak about it is I'm not a scholar of philosophy. I'm not a Sanskritist, but I have some pretty amazing teachers. Christopher Wallace is brilliant, and he titles Prachivinya Hridaya, the Recognition Sutras. And I've learned so much from him. I've never met him in person. Joan Ruvinsky and three of her women friends wrote another brilliant book called The Recognition of Our Own Heart. I never met her in person. Swami Shantananda wrote The Splendor of Recognition. Never met him in person. Paul Morler, I've met often in person, and he has an unpublished translation of this text. And really, he's just over the years been a world of help to me in general in opening up the bigger view. And Lee Lozowick, my root teacher, I have to be so grateful because his teachings have always helped me keep it real, not too esoteric, keep it down on the ground. And I have super huge gratitude to the 16 women that studied this text with me over the course of seven months. Our circle studied together just last year. I feel like they're my teachers and that circle was a major guru kind of teacher to me. So I want to say their names because it makes me happy too. So Terry and Jen and Jolie and Marianne and Michelle and Angela, Danielle, Laura, Anne, Jackie, Alyssa Rose, Jordan, Julianne, Jill. Marianne and Michelle, thank you. Okay, Prajabhinya Hridaya is a text that was written a thousand years ago, and it was written during a flowering of spiritual practice and tantra in India. This was between the 8th and 12th century of common era. This movement, which is sort of inaccurately termed Kashmir Shaivism, I don't want to go into why I'm saying that's inaccurate because certain amount of time that I can spend on this, but it was a radical movement because it included women and it included householders. By householders, I mean you're not a monk, you're not a nun, you're not a renunciate. It was a movement that was not exclusive to men or Brahmin priests, as they're called in India. And this kind of inclusion was radical then, and I'd say it's radical now. It still is not very well reflected in the majority of today's religions and spiritual communities, in my view. So imagine how radical it was back in the 8th to 12th century. This movement was also radical in that it proclaimed that God does not live in the sky, as does my teacher, Lee Loswick. She lives in here, in me, on the ground, in all things. This text wasn't lost, but a lot of the texts of the tradition were entirely lost during a political and religious invasion of India. But some of the teachings and texts were preserved in secret and kept hidden and protected by a few families, thank the goddess. And it flowered again, resurged about 30 years ago. And that's exactly when I first met it, 30 years ago, literally. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But many of the texts are gone forever. 
when you've fallen in love with a text like this, well, it makes me sad to think how much has gone. Super grateful that some have not been destroyed. The author was Shea Mirage. He was a devotee of Abhinava Gupta. Both of them are great saints and teachers and gurus, really, in the highest sense of the word, said to be truly enlightened beings. There's just so much more I could say about the roots and lineage of this text, but I wanted to keep it brief. That's a brief background of it. And still in the mood of background, I'll do a little bit more, not so much about the lineage of it, just to say that the text was written in Sanskrit. Sanskrit's considered to be a sacred language that encodes a great deal of energy, a sacred language, very powerful language. And I know a lot of you know these sorts of things, but I'm going to pretend you don't know any of it. (laughs) This text has 20 sutras, so it's pretty short given the usual length of Sanskrit texts. A sutra is a Sanskrit word for a short statement. It's a pearl of wisdom. It's a sonic container of a wisdom. When you first read most sutras, they just don't mean much to you. You're new to it. It's like, what could that possibly mean? Whether it's in Sanskrit or the translation is fairly opaque. So the way it works with sutras, they need to be heard out loud, spoken out loud, studied academically or conceptually, and melted in the heart with contemplation. The outer wrapping of the phonemes of the sound of the sutra like a wrapper around chocolate and you have to unwrap it to melt it and it's quite amazing what opens with that sutra also means thread like a strand upon which the pearls are strung so it means two things like a pearl of wisdom and the strand upon which those pearls are strung and then about the title itself pratyabhinya means recognition It's a super important word, which sounds maybe a little bit bland at first. It's a recognition, a knowing again, the truth of what you are at heart. And hridaya means heart, as in spiritual heart, which is also the hidden heart of the cosmos, which are one and the same in the end. And I love the Upanishad quote from the Chaturya Upanishad, the light that shines in the heavens, the highest heavens, the very highest heavens is the light that shines in your heart. So the light that shines in the great heart is the light that shines in your heart. And this is the Hridaya that we're talking about, the heart that we're talking about. It's not your physical heart. It's not your heart chakra, although it contains both because it contains everything. So this text rests on the view that consciousness, or you could call it awareness, rather than matter and energy, is the basic stuff of the universe. It's what manifestation comes from, out of. Consciousness steps itself down into form by vibrating first at a very high level and then slower and slower and grosser and grosser and slower in frequencies to become things like matter and energy and dogs and cats and rocks and you and me. So in other words, creation is an involution, spirit becoming matter by traversing the vibratory spectrum, sometimes called the rainbow bridge. When one steps on a path of yoga or spiritual practice, according to this view, the journey of manifestation is reversed. And sometimes that's called the great path of return or crossing the rainbow bridge because it's a movement from matter to spirit. But that movement does not mean leaving matter behind, but rather expanding the lens of awareness so much so that the practitioner comes to see it as all one. I like the Christian phrase, heaven spread out on the earth, or you could call it unitary consciousness. Joan Ravinsky one of the authors I mentioned earlier, she did a beautiful job of paraphrasing the whole text in one long sentence. I bow to her because of the text she wrote, which is just so beautiful. And also because this amazing woman wrote ecstatically with three women friends, which is important as I talk more about the feminine aspect of this text. While she was dying of cancer, which blows my mind, that she could do that and open the lens, even in that kind of suffering. 
So she writes, there is a non-temporal, non-sequential, ecstatic flow with no external agency from the unmanifest into the manifest and then consciously back through to the unmanifest. And the recognition of this flow is the recognition of the heart of awareness, of your very heart. I'm going to read that again. There is a non-temporal, non-sequential, ecstatic flow. It has no external agency. The flow is from the unmanifest into the manifest and then consciously back through to the unmanifest. And the recognition of this flow is the recognition of one's own heart, is the recognition of the capital S self. So from there, I want to talk a little bit about why and how me and this text met and fell in love and got married. I took my first yoga class 50 years ago when I was 16. Sometimes I have to practice saying that to see if it was really that long ago, but yes, it was. So that was 50 years of yoga, and I've been teaching for 40 years. So I'm fairly deep down the rabbit hole of yoga. And yoga was, for me, from the beginning, and still is, really amazing in its ability to bring me home to body and breath. But what I found with the philosophy of yoga in the early years of my yoga life, and everybody else's yoga life in the West that I know anyway, was that the philosophy was very similar to what I grew up with in school and religion, which was a pretty confusing message because when I was really young, really, really young, like three and four, the message for us really young ones was God loves me and God is everything. But then a little bit older in school and everything that comes with that, it was, wait, no, wait, God doesn't quite unconditionally love me. It's quite a bit more transactional than that. If I get it right and hit the mark and get into God's grace, then God loves me. And if I don't get it right, I fall from grace. Oh, and it turns out in this evolving message as I grew older that God is not quite everything because there are the bad and shameful parts of me and that's not God for sure. So that first little kid message when I was little, God is love and God is everything. I'm really grateful that I grew up in a family in my early years to have received that message. I feel super blessed. The second message that came later with school and so on was that I need to be constantly working hard at self-improvement to try to do my best, to be more perfect, to be perfect enough to squeeze through the knothole of heaven, you know. And of course, all of that was corroborated by culture and media and advertising, urging me to be enough, to be thin enough, to be pretty enough, to be smart enough, to be loved, really, and also purchase whatever I needed to purchase to help with all that enoughness. And then, of course, there was the opposite, my rebelling against all that, but it's the same coin, just the other side. So my yoga practice, in terms of breath and embodiment did continue to be magic and I feel I healed from eating disorders through that deep healing medicine of yoga embodiment and breath and the philosophies it was just a little confusing because the underlying philosophy was about purification and self-improvement just like everything else that I've been imbibing and also about transcendence so in fact my first meditation method was Transcendental meditation, transcend. And so it all fit together with the background of work harder, try harder, constantly strive for self improvement. And in that way, I could get away from the messy reality of me and my life, life in a body, basically. And then 25 years ago, I met Anasara Yoga. And John Friend came to the studio I owned at that time and taught a workshop. And really did a beautiful job of transmitting the philosophical underpinning of this text that I'm talking about. It was just fundamentally different and it blew my heart open. And he didn't really even say that much. I didn't know really anything about the philosophy at that time. I just felt the presence of grace and love and recognition and the philosophy and all that study came later. So this perspective that came into my yoga life 
acknowledge that, yeah, purification is necessarily going to happen as you're on a spiritual practice and path like yoga, but that's only half of the story. The other half is recognition. And with that comes joy. And that joy is in life, not transcending from life. So I then began to have a yoga practice. And by yoga, I mean meditation and breath work and the physical practice and the study and all of it that asked me to begin everything with an aim of opening to possibility, opening the frame, opening the lens first. And open to grace is what we call it in Anasara Yoga. Rather than beginning with a perspective of self-improvement or needing to purify, purify, purify. So to open to grace then is to open to the flow of undivided love. Purification will happen. This is very much recognized by this tradition and this text as well. Because to open to this force of grace is like opening to the force Thank you, China Galland. Here's a quote from her. To open to the force that drives green shoots to break the winter ground, it will certainly push some dead stuff out of the way. That's purification, but it's love. So this great force that I'm going to be talking about as I move further through the sutras, it has attribute. It's alive. This grace is alive. It has vitality. It knows it exists, it knows I exist, and it loves me. It's personal in that way. So I hope I conveyed why, of course, I fell in love with that view after the other decades. I am going to go on and talk more about the view of this text and this tradition. This is Christopher Wallace, and it's the view, as in the big view that underpins the philosophy that this text and the tradition teaches about. I'm going to read it slow. All that exists throughout all time and beyond is one infinite divine consciousness, free and blissful, which projects within the field of its awareness, a vast multiplicity of apparently differentiated subjects and objects. This creation, a divine play, is a result of the natural impulse within consciousness to express the totality of its self-knowledge in action, and this impulse arises from love. The unbounded light of consciousness, like an ocean, contracts into finite embodied waves and particles of awareness out of its own free will. When those finite subjects like you and I then identify with their limited and circumscribed circumstances that make up this phase of their existence, instead of also identifying with the overarching pulsation of pure awareness and love, the ocean, that is their true nature, then they experience suffering. To rectify this, some feel an inner urge to take up the path of spiritual and yogic practice, the purpose of which is to loosen their misidentification and bring about direct experience and awareness that one's real identity is that of the highest divinity, the whole in every part. This direct knowing is repeated and reinforced through various means and practices until it becomes the non-conceptual ground of experience. It's kind of a big message. The view from Tantra Illuminated by Christopher Wallace. And it was trimmed down a bit by me from the original. Again, the main aim of this philosophy and text is recognition, to recognize this, to see it. To remember it like maybe you knew it when you were a very little child. To become as a little child again. To recognize you're part of the whole. You are the whole. The text again and again guides us to recognize what we are. To uncognize what we've maybe so deeply infused that we're a mistake. Instead, the sutras, for me, they just sing me again and again into remembering the truth of myself. 
And I do like to think of this text as some of the people on this call maybe do too, as a song of the goddess, the song of the great mother. And the 16 women that I mentioned earlier, we did sing these sutras again and again. Many of us memorized them and we sing them almost every day as a way to remember, to remember. It's a song that draws me forward like a mother would, a mother showing her child, it's okay, you're good, you're not a mistake. And that mother, the sutras that I'm comparing to a mother, also sees where I will lose heart, where I will lose recognition, and says, even then, even when you are like that, you are my very self. You are never and never could be a mistake or outside of my love. And the text uses such skillful means to prove it again and again and again. And I would have to be very resistant to spend time with this text and its message and its proof, so to speak, and yet continue to insist on an accident on the earth. And I have definitely been that stubborn, and I probably will be again. And even then, the text says, the mother says, even then, you are my very own heart. So any text or context or poetry or music or way of practice that engenders this recognition is worth everything. It doesn't have to be this text. It's worth everything. I just happen to think, as many people do, that this text is super brilliant. But this recognition, this recognition to become as a little child again and have a way there is the highest possible. Baba Muktananda, to be a fully enlightened being and a great guru, loved this text. And he once said of it, in the Sanskrit language, Hridaya is the heart. This text is the heart of all philosophies. This book contains only 20 aphorisms. And although it contains only 20, I have been studying it for 30 years. A person who understands these 20 sutras does not have to know a 21st. She does not have to know anything else in this world. <laughs> so I love it. He had been studying it for 30 years. And I wouldn't say I've been studying this text for 30 years, but I've been in contact with this tradition for 30 years. Of course, there's plenty of texts and contexts which argue for the necessity of remorse and purification and discipline, things like practice like your hair is on fire, things like that. And that is good. All of that is her also. All of that is the goddess of awareness also. But I have found that for myself and others with whom I work as a student and a teacher and a mentor, that unless that hard, strong work and that really fiery work even is grounded and opened her grace and love first, it becomes for me another form of separation from her. So for me to begin any effort towards intensified spiritual practice sadhana, with the premise that I am and always have been inside of grace, not outside of grace, allows me to engage in that practice as a form of acceleration. So there's practice like your hair is on fire, that image of acceleration, a form of acceleration towards, like running towards my one true love and the embrace of that. Okay. So now, are you actually going to say what any of these sutras are? And of course, I don't have time for all 20 sutras, but let me bring forward a few of them. This first sutra, the Sanskrit, I'll sing it because that's how we do it, how we did it in our studies together anyways. Chitti Satantra Vishwasiddhi Hetuhu couple of translations include jaw-dropping wonder in unfettered freedom. The cause of the universe is this. <sighs> Big bang, jaw-dropping wonder, unfettered freedom. Another translation is consciousness in her freedom brings about the magic of the creation of the universe. So Sutra 1, the first sutra contains it all. And the first sutra of these sutra texts generally does contain the whole. It's the big, wide open expansion. There's no contraction. It's the whole thing. Like the teachers of these texts say, if you get the first sutra, you don't have to do anything else. You don't have to do the rest. I've never known anybody who has gotten the first sutra, first go, but it's kind of a wonderful thought that could actually happen. 
So the very first word in Sanskrit is chitti, C-I-T-I, chitti. The C in Sanskrit is always a ch sound. And it translates as awareness or the goddess of awareness or the goddess of universal consciousness. The pronoun used to refer to chitti, awareness, is she. It's feminine. You've probably noticed I'm using a lot of feminine pronoun for God, which is beyond gender, as we all know. But I love to use the feminine pronoun when I teach this text and other texts because it makes sense to me on so many levels, including that for the last 2,000 plus years and most of my adult life, God has been a he. So it's kind of nice to mix it up and balance it out a bit while always recognizing it as one, not he nor she at the highest level. Also, using the pronoun she is in keeping with the divine feminine tantric roots of the culture and background of this tradition that I'm speaking about. The tantric roots honored the divine feminine deeply. And for me, the choice she or her for me personally is a super happy devotion to the divine mother from which manifestation materializes. Joan Ravinsky has this beautiful quote, which I'll read to you. Whether the passionate outpouring of creation is described as the emission of Shiva or the orgasmic birth throes of the Divine Mother, it is difficult to capture the immensity and power in language. The choice of she and her feels more in keeping with the tone of Tantra that describes creation as a blissful surge the overflowing of the absolute into creation from the womb and yoni of the goddess. So back to Sutra 1, briefly, jaw-dropping wonder and unfettered freedom, the cause of the universe is this. You could think of that as a description of God, if you like. It's the whole wide open expansion. Then comes Sutra 2. And this sutra says that in the beginning, the luminous womb is, and the luminous womb willingly leaps in delight and lets herself go of herself upon herself. It all comes forth. It's a big birth, you know? By the power of her own will, she unfolds the universe. So these first two sutras. I want to just stop there and say, what do you think? Isn't that great? But I'm aiming to give you a swoop through the sutras tonight, just to give you a taste. Sutras three to nine describe a kind of map or a journey of manifestation, which necessarily includes contraction, because the ocean can't become waves without surface tension. But there's contraction so that embodiment can happen from the wide open expanse into embodiment until we arrive at Sutra 9, where the contraction has become so dense that there's no remembrance of connection to the whole. And the result is sorrow, aloneness, despair, complete forgetting. Then Sutra 10 begins the description of the great path of return the rainbow bridge, so to speak, the path of return to expansion and recognition. And it moves through a description of that path of return, which will happen for all beings because there is no being left behind. Through Sutra 19, some of the sutras describe methods and means and ways, and others of those sutras describe how it is. And others of those sutras say, oh, and here's how it is when you slip back, because you will, and you'll forget. And even then, you are within my love. And then we land at Sutra 20, the last sutra of the text, which is a big, ta-da, all of this is her. All of this is God, only God. May it be a blessing. So, all 20 sutras in a nutshell, I'm going to try again. All 20 sutras in a nutshell, consciousness, the goddess of awareness, undergoes a spontaneous, unbridled impulse from within herself, and consciousness spills out of its own free will and overflows into form. This form expresses itself as the many, 
the multiplicity of creation, as Darwin said, the 10,000 forms most wondrous. And each form, of course, interacts with other forms and reciprocally adapts. And each part is never different or separate from its source, even if it has forgotten. It's never actually separate. This coagulation into mind and object and form, there's limitation of time, there's limitation of space, limited ability to act, limited knowledge, partial perfection, or rather seeming imperfection. The one also becomes all the different ways of seeing herself. And this includes all the different religions and perspectives and political views, including my own perspective and every perspective is necessarily partial because it has to be because it's a part it's a part of the whole but it's partial so each individual perspective is limited to an unknown degree this part of the text for me was just huge because our culture is so incredibly divided and i live amongst people who have such different views than me And when I apply this teaching to myself and say, okay, so if it's true, if I'm really going for it with this text, and I am, and I do, then my individual perspective is limited. Okay, yep, I agree. To an unknown degree, I don't know how limited my perspective is. So that makes me open my mind to other perspectives. I don't have to adopt them but I can't be closed anymore. It's not possible. And that has been really transformative for me. I find I just don't take hard stances anymore. And I feel I'm a more peaceful person on account of that. So onward through the text, eventually the individual, through a movement of inward turning, things like meditation and self-reflection, begins to see itself as a part of the whole, basically. And I begin to see myself as not separate or different from them or from one another or from others or from the whole, from the ocean itself. I like a lyric from one of Lee Lozowick's song, everything is everything, truth be told. Everything is everything, truth be told. And that's the awareness that begins to arise as one steps on this path of return. And so the seeing of the whole is so different from needing to transcend this messy earth. It's a seeing of the whole within manifestation, heaven spread out upon the earth. So that was my next attempt at the 20 sutras in a nutshell. In the text, there's various methods mentioned, practices, but also in the text, It says numerous methods abound. There are plenty of practices. And the text itself says, including whatever works. So if being in the garden is what works to connect you to the whole or being in nature, then that's where you should be. But then the text also encourages repeatedly expanding those moments of connection. Thich Nhat Hanh said, if we're to remember what we truly are if we're to save ourselves we need to slow down i think that's another way of stating the teaching of repeatedly resting in the afterglow of moments of recognition slow down let it land feel the wholeness of connection and there's even good evidence that this allows it to wire into your neurology better if you give it space to land. And now I want to read a couple of things from Alan Watts and then one poem that reflects the teaching of this text really well, I think. Alan Watts says, you are a function of what the whole universe is doing in the same way that a wave is a function of what the whole ocean is doing. You are an aperture through which the universe is looking at and exploring itself. Through your eyes, the universe is perceiving itself. Through your ears, the universe is listening to its harmonies. We are the witnesses through which the universe becomes conscious of its glory, of its magnificence. And then David White wrote, 
this beautiful poem. It's not the whole poem, but it's part of it here. He says, to be human is to become visible. That's like a wave becoming visible, part of the ocean. To be human is to become visible while carrying what is hidden as a gift to others. To remember the other world in this world is to live in your true inheritance. You are not a troubled guest on this earth. You are not an accident amidst other accidents. You were invited. You are not a mistake. I wanted to bring a myth into this teaching the way I know it or feel it. So this myth is about Shiva and Shakti. And it's important when listening to a myth to recognize the myth is all about you. (laughs) That's good. It's all about you. All the parts, all the players in the myth are you. Otherwise, it's just a nice story. So in this myth, there's just two players. Well, no, no, there's more coming. But at, at the beginning, there's just two players. And it's Shiva and Shakti. Shiva represents a beautiful, spacious, pristine presence. You might think of the Shiva consciousness as what you might experience when your eyes are closed and you're in really sweet meditation space. Or maybe when you've gotten to go away on some kind of retreat and it's just so quiet and spacious and peaceful. That's what we're calling Shiva consciousness in this myth. And in other myths, Shiva will represent other things. But in this myth, that. And then Shakti in this myth goes by the name of Parvati and represents the complexity and multiplicity of life. It's the messiness of life, the 10,000 things, the big dance, the big play, the big show. So in this myth, Shiva and Parvati are fighting. And it's a big fight. They're having a huge fight. She is full of emotion. She is pissed off. She is too much. She's out of control. She won't let herself be managed. She won't settle down and meditate. She's super fierce. And he keeps telling her, honey, settle down. You need to just calm down. Every time he says something like a she gets more furious. And then all of a sudden she shapeshifts into Kali. And Kali represents in this myth the energy that comes into form in those crossroads when it's time to wake up. So now Parvati has shapeshifted into Kali. And Kali is there to unravel contraction and crack open frozen consciousness. Very fierce, very fiery. And she's standing in front of Shiva and she's horrifying in her fierceness. And Shiva is terrified. And he stops trying to control and judge and analyze and guide her into a more perfect version of herself. Instead, he tries to get out the back door. Kind of like religion might have told me anyway that I could escape all that messiness and emotion if I transcended it, basically. But the teaching is really clear. Whatever I try to run away from or push away, it's not going to go away. It just lives without my awareness, which is not a good thing. So Shiva tries to get out the back door, but Kali appears in front of him. And she's even more fierce. And this show goes on. He tries to get out the window. He tries to get out another door. Every time he tries to escape and numb or buffer, or daydream, or escape in various ways, she transforms, she shapeshifts, and sometimes she's really beautiful, and seductive, and he wants that, and then he goes towards that, and then shapeshifts, and he just really can't get away from life, all of it, all of it, all of it, and so he finally knows that, and he surrenders, and the moment he surrenders, all the goddesses, all the forms that Kali has shapeshifted into and Parvati has shapeshifted into dissolve back into one. And Shakti dissolves into Shiva. The two unite in a passionate lovemaking. And that is peace and bliss. This is a great myth for me, showing me that all the parts of me have to be taken care of. All the parts of my life have to turn towards 
in order to unite them with goddess, in order to bring them home to God, to God as awareness in me, not to make them go away, but to surrender to them, not to make a more perfect version of me, on the contrary, to make a humbler and more imperfect me. And in that, I bring forth my basic goodness, a generosity, a goodness that's deeper and kinder. And I also believe this heals not just me, but generations forward and backward from me. These parts that were given to me to bring into my full awareness, to bring my consciousness fully into them like that. I know there's other beautiful ways of talking about this practice. And I know self-observation is a really awesome way. And several people on this call practice that. I think it's just saying the same thing from a different avenue in that presence is what makes it possible for Shiva to stay instead of running away, to be deeply present, deep with awareness. Okay, so that's what I got for you. I actually have quite a bit more, but that's enough, I think. I would love it if anybody that studied this text wants to chime in and how it touched them. I would love to hear from you. Thank you for telling that story. This text has helped me. And one of the things that really stood out in the study that we did was anxiety. I have a tendency to have a lot of anxiety. And there's a section in the text that Christopher Wallace has that talks about anxiety as kind of the root of Kamskara. I have anxiety when I'm experiencing something joyful. Like today, I was playing with my grandson. And I was fully present. And we were just playing with a box. I brought an empty box just to see how many things we could do with it while we were just hanging out. But there was this tiny little underlying anxiety present, like how much longer before it ends. There's always this little bit of an underlying anxiety about when things are pleasurable, like I was experiencing today, or when something is painful and I think it's never going to end. There's this anxiety about it. And that leaves almost like a stain. And the text goes on to talk about how even that, when that arises, when I become aware that, oh, there that is. There's that little underlying anxiety. It's arising again, here to ruin my moment with my grandson (laughs) or something like that. I could pause and instead of being like Shiva and run away, to come back like Shiva and just surrender to it, to be present with it, to just notice that that's also here. And according to the text, when I'm able to do that, it dissolves, it's digested. It has the possibility of being reintegrated instead of disowned or exited out the back door or any of that I don't have to escape it. I can actually just be present with it. And when I'm aware, when I'm present with that, I notice it actually can make my experience much fuller. It doesn't ruin my joy. But when I was really attached to it, like, oh, there's that anxiety, it actually went deeper in. It didn't get a chance to be experienced, felt, heard, acknowledged, recognized. And When I do allow it, it just seems to have this experience, for me at least, of expanding the whole experience. And then my play did come to an end, but I carried this with me. I didn't carry the anxiety home. I actually carried this low. Something so simple as just playing in my grandson's living room with an empty cardboard box and making it a boat and a couch and all these different things. And we just played and played and that underlying anxiety wasn't unwelcome. It's just there and it's not as strong as it used to be. That's so cool. There's this whole chunk that I skipped because it's just too much for one night, but awareness or consciousness steps itself down from steam to water to ice. So the anxiety is almost like ice, but you become present with it. It melts open and expands back out. What I loved about study of this text was It arrived at a time in my life where I needed to tenderize myself. Sutra 9 is about the contraction. I've limited myself down to the smallest nugget of contraction. And I was so afraid for so long to 
expand and open because the level of expectation that I was manufactured to be was so, you need to be like this. So I got to open this text and be present. And I think a lot of it was the women in the room were so powerful because as I was starting to make that path of return or the path of understanding, I like to call it the demanufacturing of myself to remember the me that was me before I was manufactured to me. This text allowed me to do that. And in that melting, as you just said, from ice, melting allowed me to now see every single day the magic of jaw-dropping wonder. Mm -hmm. And I think I kept myself from seeing that jaw-dropping wonder because I was this nugget and I couldn't actually break out of that because I was so scared that if I actually tenderized myself, I'd actually have to reveal myself. And this text was very powerful for me to feel safe in that revelation that not only is everything jaw-dropping wonder, but also I am jaw-dropping wonder. Mm -hmm. And that is a really powerful realization because for a lot of years, I kept myself small in order to not offend. I remembered that in school as well, like you talked about that three and four-year-old church study that was, God is amazing and he loves you. And we would sing these songs. You get to be 12 and 13 and your study changes, at least mine did, to what I should be and what I'm expected to be. Once I started studying this text, it was really powerful to realize yeah, we're all jaw-dropping wonder. That's why we're here. Mm -hmm. So I've been reading this thing for a year. If I could take one tiny piece that has really made a profound difference for me, because I'm a passionate student of Red Hawk's work and self-observation and self-remembering. And there's a piece in the Recognition Sutras, which basically says, in my words, that only by bringing my awareness to creation does God come alive. If I'm walking unconsciously through the forest, where is God? As soon as I remember, it's self-remembering. God is alive. God is alive in that tree. It's alive under my feet. God is alive in my body. Whatever that is that you think of as God. There are so many things I could say about this work. I'm an art teacher for children for elementary and middle school. And one of the things I like to do at least every couple of years is I'll take a big masterpiece like the Mona Lisa and split it into a whole bunch of pieces, as many as I have students who are going to work on the project. And each student has to recreate their little section. And then we put it all back together again into a really big Mona Lisa or really big whatever the painting is. And for me, when we were studying the Recognition Sutras, I really understood that it's all one. And parts of this big Mona Lisa that the children are doing will be completely dark. And some parts will be completely light. And some parts will be complex. But it's all part of the whole Mona Lisa. And it's really neat for the kids to learn that. And I feel like this study was like that for me. Especially the painful or the ugly parts of life or humanity, they're really hard to metabolize. They're really hard to understand or digest. And I remember that was one of the hardest parts of our year of study was talking about that. How could suffering be part of the God or goddess or any of us? But it is. And for me, this study is the only thing in my whole life that has made that make sense. If I took myself and I shattered myself into a thousand pieces, some parts of me would be completely crummy and selfish and self-serving and some parts of myself would be completely light and beautiful, but it would all be part of me regardless. And it's the same way with consciousness, I think. It's kind of a really big thing to talk about, but that really made an impression on me. I just achieved a level of acceptance and understanding that I haven't been able to throughout my life. I still struggle with suffering and seeing others suffer, but I have more understanding about it. So I have just completely appreciated and loved this study. And I can see why so many really well-respected 
wise people have just thought it was such a jewel because it really is. I can't spend the next five minutes or so talking about some ways to study a text like this if you're interested in that. It's kind of the classic way of studying a sutra text. Why don't I do that? So there's some recommendations for studying a text like this, and some of them are if possible and not hard and fast. But if possible, study a text like this together. In other words, have a sangha or a kula or a friend at least to study it with. I would say if that's not possible for you, then to have a really good book. Any of the books I mentioned, I could say I'm studying it together with Christopher Wallace or Joan Rabinsky. And thing goes for the next recommendation is to study it with a teacher. But these books are truly amazing teachers. So got that one. It is important in studying a sutra text. They're meant to be heard. The Sanskrit language is that way. So to find out the pronunciation, our group of 16 women, we put it to a tune and we sing it. So we learned the pronunciation really specifically and also made it into a song, I guess they could call it, so that we could hear it out loud. And also the actual study, more of an academic study, know what each word means, what are some alternate translations to really study it, like you think what the word study means. But also then a really important part of studying a sutra text is to do the kind of study that it's called bhavana. It's a Sanskrit word, bhavana, which is after you've done that recitation out loud and you've done your study and you spent some time with it, and then you go into meditation. It doesn't have to be a big, long meditation, just a couple minutes, and drop the sutra in. It's like you're dropping it to the bottom of the wishing well of yourself and just wait and see what kind of streams of inspiration arise. And have a pen and paper handy. Or I've heard people say, I don't do pen and paper, I do art. That's great. Just have some way to express what comes up from that wishing well. And then do it again, repeat, rewind. So study recitation, the academic formal study, and the meditative deep contemplation. Repeat, rewind, repeat, rewind. It's important to mention, I think it's kind of obvious, but I want to say it anyway, that this text, like other sacred texts, is very alive. It is not just a dead pile of paper. It is very alive. It's capable of transmission. And Christopher Wallace says it's even capable of initiation, like Iksha. And I agree, but I just want you to know, I didn't say that. Christopher Wallace said that. And the degree of transmission depends partly upon how wholeheartedly the student moves into a relationship with the text. It's like being with a teacher. The more wholeheartedly I show up and plug in, the greater is going to be the transmission and initiation. It's like plugging in a lamp. If you're interested in plugging into a text like this to really show up for it, the more streams of wisdom will come from the text. The transmission can get really powerful, and then it shows up outwardly in your life in really surprising ways. Delightful, really. It makes me laugh out loud sometimes. The teaching will show up out on the freeway, let's say, or in the grocery store. Literally, I, I do sometimes laugh out loud when it happens. It's really magic for me. Shows up in your dreams, in synchronicities and coincidences. In fact, one of the terms for God, goddess, name it as you wish or no name at all, is the great Cosmic Coincidence Coordinator. <laughs> so the great Cosmic Coincidence Coordinator will have this text or other alive texts like this show up in your life to illuminate and transmit their wisdom to us even more fully and surprisingly. So anything else? Sure, I'll take a chance here. <laughs> okay. The text, it doesn't seem gender specific to me so much. I mean, it's profound. Oh, it's not gender specific. I'm sorry if I made that impression. Oh, no, no, you didn't. I'm just kind of noticing the response to this and wondering about that myself. Do you find that there's more possibility for women to work on this together because of the specific dynamics that women share? Maybe because of so many unconscious dynamics that men have due to cultural programming. 
Or do you see it differently than that? It just seems like the response is enthusiastic Mm. among women. Yeah. Here's what I think. Yes, it was for our group of women. I believe almost every one of us would say, oh, it's kind of a relief to just, I don't mean to not have men there, but just to feel free to use the feminine pronoun liberally and not feel exclusive about that. I don't think it's at all exclusive to women. I only did have my most powerful study experience of it with a group of women. But before that, teaching it two times through before that, it was men and women, and it was equally powerful, equally powerful. I think maybe we had an enthusiastic, really wonderful seven months, but not because we're just women. I don't think so. Well, I just wonder how guys participate, how that goes. Oh, same. Listen, Baba Muktananda was a guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the authors of the text are men. And I think it's helpful to have a devotion to the divine feminine to study this particular text mm-hmm. in that God is referred to that way. You told the story of Shiva and Parvati. I personally really get, as a man on the spiritual path, Practice is about surrendering to the feminine. I mean, that's one way of looking at it, meaning the feminine can be embodied as a woman, but also as all of creation. And so you told the story of how a union occurred when Shiva surrendered fully to Parvati. Do you see that that is the dynamic that needs to take place for union to occur? I think that. The Shiva aspect of myself needs to surrender into creation. I don't think it's about male or female per se. Mm -hmm. That part of me that wants to transcend and get away and have a pristine retreat inside my own mind needs to continue to surrender into creation to Parvati. Oh, yes. This whole intrapersonal aspect of it is key. Mm -hmm that all that occurs within ourselves. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really see it so much as men and women. Mm-hmm. One of the most exciting parts to me about this text was that it really addressed not reaching enlightenment, not just enlightenment, but oh, not in some other lifetime, but while we're alive in this life, while we're here like reaching an understanding, reaching a... Recognition. um, Yeah, yeah, I guess just recognition while being here, while going to work, while driving in traffic. And I actually was driving in traffic when I heard that part of the book and I was so excited because it made so much sense that we're not just slaving away at these practices for something that's going to maybe happen someday, but it's something that I can do even when I go through the market line. And do I do that all the time? No. But since doing these studies, I definitely do it more. I definitely feel more conscious as I go through my daily life. And it definitely has been a shift for me and within me. And that was really fresh with this text. And again, this text really just solidified so many other decades of study and so it was really pivotal part of what you expressed points to is it's not a one-time journey okay and then we finally get it and then we have enlightenment in this very life it's like huh you're gonna remember and then you forget it remember and then you forget and that goal-oriented top of the mountain thing is really not so useful i think sutra nine when contraction is so dense that there's no remembrance. That Sutra 9, it could happen in any day, like, oh, I'm bottom of the heap today or whatever. <laughs> but then in the movement from Sutra 9 to Sutra 20, it's this really cool thing that the author does, Shemaraja does. He goes, and then you remember, and then you fall back a little bit, and then you remember, and then maybe not. And then about Sutra 14, there's this acceleration. It's like, oh, oh. And there's a little bit easier remembrance, I guess I would say. But still, yesterday I was Sutra 9, and maybe tomorrow I'll be 20. I don't know. (laughs) 
I would think that the singing of it too brings it into the body. Mm. It's a vehicle of remembrance from the way you describe it. Remembrance, yeah. Well, thank you all. I really feel grateful to have a chance to spend extra focused time with this text and with beloved ones that I know and don't know. And thank you.